Hi there, microbiology people. This is Dr. B, and today's topic lecture is the respiratory system infections, and this corresponds to chapter 22 in the OpenStax book. And as usual, um, we start with the uh, anatomy, very basic anatomy of the system in question, and we talk about the uh, um, defenses that exist in the system, and then we move to the different infections grouped by agents. So the respiratory system can be divided into the upper and lower regions, and these the two are divided by the epiglottis. The upper region clearly is going to be more exposed to the environment, the outside environment, and in, uh, contain the nasal cavity, all three pharynxes, so that would be the nasopharynx, the oropharynx, and the laryngopharynx. Um, it is also important to note that there is a connection to the middle ear through the uh, tube called the Eustachian tube. There are also tonsils and sinuses associated to the nasal cavities, and in addition, we have the oral cavity. The lower respiratory region in, contains the larynx, the trachea, the bronchial tubes, and the alveoli. Now, I just want you to remember that lungs are of extreme importance for the human body, particularly when you think about the gas exchange, you know, oxygen comes in, carbon dioxide comes out, and this exchange happens in those very delicate uh, structures called the alveoli of the lung, which are covered with those tiny capillaries. So for that reason, um, you know, lungs are very, very protected. And we will see that many of these defense systems that exist will try their best to avoid microbes getting into the lungs. What are the, um, the physical defenses of the respiratory system? Well, the mucous membranes are not as robust as the skin that has, you know, multiple layers of cells and keratin and so on, but they are still are pretty effective. And part of it is because within that mucous membranes, there are these specialized cells called goblet cells. And goblet cells secrete the mucus. And then the cells lining the respiratory epithelium present cilia, you know, those hair-like projections that are typical only of eukaryotic cells. So the combination of the mucus trapping stuff and you know stuff can be dust or can be bacteria or particles coming their way and the cilia beating continuously moving away that mucus away from the lower regions is going to present a very uh, effective defense mechanism and this is one of the reasons why people who for example are smokers may have weaker defenses because the cigarette smoke has been shown to damage the cilia of the respiratory epithelium and for that reason that this um, system called the ciliary escalator is not as effective in you know moving away stuff coming into the respiratory system. 
Other um, defense mechanisms include the normal microbiota that is resident mostly in the upper respiratory region, as you know, the fact that, the, let's say, the, the surface is occupied by normal non-pathogenic microbes is going to make it more difficult for the pathogens to <clears throat> adhere and invade. Other mechanisms include chemical substances such as IgA, the secretory immunoglobulin antibody. We also have lysozymes, surfactant, defensins. So defensins was one of those groups of antimicrobial peptides that we talk about in the innate immune system. And last but not least, I also want to mention malt. So MALT, M-A-L-T, stands for mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue. And when we say lymphoid tissue, think mostly lymphocytes. There can be other immune cells, but these are groupings of lymphocytes that are very common underneath tissues that are exposed to the outside environment. So that would be, for example, the respiratory system, but also we will see that they exist in the GI system. Now, there are many respiratory diseases and uh, through different agents, you know, we have, for example, common cold, it's a virus. We have flu, influenza, that's also caused by viruses. We have measles, which was actually mentioned in the skin chapter because measles has skin manifestations. You're going to observe skin rash, but it's actually transmitted via the respiratory route. We have chickenpox, we have a number of pneumonia, and there are vaccines, many vaccines, to against some of these very common respiratory diseases. As for the normal microbiota of the respiratory system, again, the upper region is more exposed to the outside environment, so we are going to find an abundant and diverse group of microbes that are normal in the upper region. Among them, some may be actually opportunistic. Remember, opportunistic pathogens means that this is a pathogen that doesn't cause disease in a healthy individual or if the defenses are um, intact. But if there is an immune deficiency or a breach in the mucosa, for example, these microbes can penetrate and then cause diseases. So some examples of this normal microbiota of the respiratory system would be Staphylococcus epidermidis, which is kind of funny because epidermidis says epidermis. So you would think that these are mostly in the skin, but actually they can also survive in the, uh, in the respiratory system. Mostly think about, you know, the, the nasal cavity. Then there are streptococci, and we are going to see more in detail the, the so-called pathogenic streptococci, but there are a number of streptococci that are not pathogenic. And there is a word for it, and they are called viridens group streptococci, VGS. Viridens is spelled V-I-R-I-D-A-N-S, and this is really a, um, a um, definition that is kind of 
not that used anymore. It's uh, supposed to be not really a taxonomic group, but this is, you know, still a lot of people call them viridans streptococci. Again, these are no pathogenic streptococci. Then we have corinobacterium species, and we will learn about one pathogenic species, which is corinobacterium diphtheria, which causes diphtheria. But there are many non-pathogenic corinobacteria. Also, we have propionobacterium plus Haemophilus species. And Haemophilus, the one species is called Haemophilus influenza. So these are bacteria, even though Haemophilus influenza sounds exactly like influenza of the flu virus. Um, so the most common diseases of the respiratory system, infectious diseases, um, are named by the tissue infected in the, in the process. So we can talk about rhinitis, sinusitis, otitis, pharyngitis, bronchitis, and so on. Um, we mentioned viridian streptococci as those that are non-pathogenic, but the pathogenic streptococci, in general streptococci, but this is particularly used for those streptococci that cause diseases, can be done based on their effect on red blood cells. So hemolysis is the process by which certain bacteria are produced toxins that can break, they can lyse the uh, red blood cells. There are three types of hemolysis, alpha, beta, and gamma. And gamma hemolysis basically means no hemolysis. Now, beta hemolysis is complete hemolysis. So you see the colonies of the streptococcus growing on this red blood-containing medium. So blood agar is a medium that contains sheep blood. So the blood cells are actually present in the agar. So in beta hemolysis, you will see around the colonies this clear halo. And it's clear because the red blood cells have been broken down completely. So in beta hemolysis, the streptococci are able to completely break down the red blood cells. In contrast, alpha hemolysis is a partial hemolysis. So what you will see around the colonies is a greenish color because the, uh, the toxins produced are able to attack the red blood cells but are not able to completely break them down. Okay, so again, alpha, beta, gamma hemolysis for streptococcus classification. Alpha is partial, you see green color. Beta is complete, it's a clear halo. And gamma is just means no hemolysis. I would like you to, um, you know, I can explain it from, you know, how it works, but it's much easier if, if you actually go to the lab of throat culture or you go to the, uh, this part of the textbook and actually look at the, uh, the tables or the diagrams of how they are classified. But again, we can look at streptococci based on hemolysis in alpha, beta, and gamma. And I'm going to start with beta because those are the most aggressive uh, pathogenic streptococci. So beta hemolytic streptococci include 
group A and group B streptococci. And you may have seen for group A streptococci the abbreviation GAS, G-A-S. And group A streptococci include one of the nastiest streptococci, which is Streptococcus pyogenes. Uh, you may remember in the very beginning we talked about how the names of bacteria often will tell us something about the bacterium. And pyo, P-Y-O, means pus. So this kind of refers to the ability of Streptococcus pyogenes of causing many infectious diseases that involve the production of pus. Um, so these are group A streptococci, of which the most infamous is strep pyogenes. Now the group B streptococci, or GBS, has only one representative, and this is called streptococcus agalactiae, so A-G-A-L-A-C-T-I-A-E. So why are they known for? So group B streptococci are often mentioned in the context of pregnant mothers, so pregnant females, because the baby, if the woman is, has a GBS infection, that infection can be transmitted to the baby, and that can cause you know, very serious infection in the newborn. Uh, for that reason, the um, detection and treatment of group B streptococci in pregnant females is very important, thinking both of the, mo the mother and the baby. Um, Beta-hemolytic streptococci are sensitive to an antibiotic called bacitracin. And you will understand in a moment why this is important. Moving on to alpha-hemolytic streptococci, the, well, we have the very dense one that we already talked about it. Group A streptococci, specifically strep pyogenes, is sensitive to an antibiotic called bacitracin. And why this is important, you will see in a moment. Moving on to alpha-hemolytic streptococci, you will have both um, the viridans streptococci, these are the non-pathogenic streptococci, and streptococcus pneumonia. As the name indicates, this is an agent that can cause pneumonia. So while strep pneumonia is not as nasty in the sense that it's alpha-hemolytic compared to the beta-hemolytic nature of strep pyogenes, it's still a pre pretty um, pathogenic bacterium. In the case of strep pneumonia, that one is sensitive to another antibiotic called optokin. And the reason this is important, it's because when you need to figure out really quickly and confirm if the bacterium streptococcus isolated is pneumonia or pyogenes, you can use this different antibiotic sensitivity. So let me repeat clearly, strep pneumonia is sensitive to optokin 
and resistant to bacitracin. And the opposite is true for strep pyogenase. Strep pyogenase is sensitive to bacitracin and resistant to optokin. And among the um, gamma hemolytic streptococci, there are a number of non-pathogenic streptococci, but also um, enterococci. You wonder why enterococci are among the streptococci? Well, you know, bacteria are often named and then renamed in the history, in their history. So what we know we call these days enterococci, they used to be classified as streptococci in the past, and um, then later they were assigned this completely different genus called enterococcus. And some of them are actually pathogenic. But enterococci are gamma hemolytic, which means they don't hemolyze red blood cells. Let's get started now with the bacterial infections on the respiratory system. And we are going to start with the really nasty beta hemolytic streptococcus pyogenes, group A streptococci. Why is it so nasty? Because it has a large number of virulence factors. That includes exoenzymes. Remember that exoenzymes are the enzymes that are released from the cell so they can break down all kinds of large molecules outside. They also produce exotoxin. Now, something that I um, may have said in the strap versus, uh, sorry, staff versus strap little lab stuff talk uh, earlier is that Remember that streptococci are catalase negative. So that's another important feature of streptococci. So in contrast to staphylococci, which are catalase positive, streptococci are catalase negative. So strep throat, well, it's a very common infection of the throat, especially in children. It can cause high fever, and it may lead to a condition called scarlet fever. And scarlet fever means that there will be this um, skin rash, red rash on the skin, and this is due to the presence of a toxin. The problem with strep uh, throat is that um, well, it can be treated with antibiotic and it will go away eventually. It may uh, leave what we call sequelae. So, if, especially if the uh, you know antibiotic hasn't been taken complete, the complete uh, cycle of maybe it was not the best antibiotic prescribed, it may remain. It may damage, uh, for example, the heart and. Um, and the kidneys, so it may cause what we call rheumatic fever and also acute glomerulonephritis. So again, strep throat, although it may just seem a, you know, very common, it is a very common throat infection, but it should be given the uh, appropriate attention. In the infection, so the next infection is the infection of the ear. Uh, specifically the middle ear, we call the acute otitis media. It's very common in children. If you ever seen or had a child with um, ear infection, you know it is ex extremely painful. It's very difficult 
for the kid to to manage and the reason why it's so painful is because you have pus accumulating in the middle ear what causes otitis media it can be streptococcus pneumonia hemophilus influenza and moraxella catarralis which we haven't talked about moraxella but this is another bacterium next one is diphtheria so we mentioned that coordinate bacterium species are normal um, representatives of the uh, microbiota of the respiratory system, but specifically coronary bacterium diphtheria causes diphtheria. So this is a gram-positive rod. Um, it has a very obvious manifestation, which is called a pseudomembrane. So I encourage you to look at the picture, but it's basically this whitish um, membrane that can be observed in the throat, and it is preventable with a vaccine. Now let's talk about pneumonia. And pneumonia is a condition which refers to the infection of the lung, and it can be caused by many different agents. Now, what is the what are the dangers of you know an infection of the lung? Well, clearly, it's going to affect the uh, the breathing and the gas exchange in the lungs. Um, it can be also painful due to the inflammation of the tissue and it can be dangerous because the accumulation of fluids and white blood cells in the alveoli. So again, anything that damages the lungs or harms the lungs can, um, you know, can be very dangerous for the fact that it's related to an important function of the gas exchange but also by damaging these very fragile structures in the lungs, like the alveoli, um, it may cause, you know, permanent damage. So again, many uh, agents can cause it. So we are going to get started with pneumonia. <clears throat> and there are three main types of pneumonia, the pneumococcal, and pneumococcal with a P, uh, because it's caused by S pneumonia. So streptococcus pneumonia. Then we have hemophilus influenza pneumonia. And third is the mycoplasmal pneumonia. Okay, so pneumococcal pneumonia is caused by the well-known alpha hemolytic, gram-positive, catalase-negative, optic-insensitive strep pneumonia. And this bacterium also has virulence factors. One of them is the capsule, which is going to protect them from the immune system and um, also produces lytic uh, toxins and these are called pneumolysin. What, is, uh, what characterizes the pneumococcal pneumonia? Well, besides inflammation of the lungs, it's productive cough, blood is sputum, and it can be treated with antibiotics, and actually there are vaccines available against this type of pneumonia. Hemophilus pneumonia is caused by hemophilus influenza, and this is a gram-negative cocobacillus, so it's a very short rod, which doesn't have a capsule. So that kind of tells you that this is not that uh, aggressive compared to strep pneumonia and tends to be more common in elderly people. 
Haemophilus influenza is considered a fastidious microbe, which means that it requires very rich, nutritionally rich media, and it's usually grown on a medium called chocolate agar, which doesn't contain chocolate. It contains blood components, and therefore it has this um, brownish color. And the third type of uh, pneumonia is the mycoplasma pneumonia. And you may recall a long time ago when we were talking about names of bacteria and types of bacteria, said, okay, you have to be careful and not confusing mycobacteria with mycoplasma. Mycobacteria are the acid-fast positive cells that, um, you know, contain this waxy, very resistant cell wall, example, mycobacterium tuberculosis. Mycoplasma are, the, are these very rare, strange bacteria that don't have a cell wall. So the mycoplasma pneumonia is much milder compared to the other pneumonias. We, it's called also the walking pneumonia, and it tends to be mild and self-limited. Moving on to some other um, bacterial pneumonias, we have uh, chlamydial pneumonias. And you may recall we mentioned chlamydia before, they are also kind of weird bacteria in that they require to be inside another cell. So it's almost like a virus, but it's not a virus, it's a bacterium, but it's an obligate intracellular pathogen. So uh, chlamydophila pneumonia, formerly known as chlamydia pneumonia, can cause a certain type of pneumonia. And another Chlamydia, called psittaci, can cause a disease called psittacosis or psittacosis. It's uh, spelled P-S-I-T-T-A-C-O-S-I-S. And what is interesting about this disease is that it's transmitted from birds. So it's a zoonotic disease, and it happens often in people who work with birds, let's say in an aviary or a zoo and so on. And then we have chlamydia trachomatis. So this is, this is actually a sexually transmitted disease, but it can infect the babies, the baby um, during birth. Um, something that we need to be aware of is that pneumonias can be more common and also more aggressive in healthcare settings. Um, and why? Well, first you have a healthcare setting, so there are going to be more pathogens floating around. There are a number of opportunistic pathogens that can cause pneumonias. Uh, for example, Klebsiella pneumonia, very nasty one, but even Staph aureus, um, Escherichia, Protis, and Serratia. So that's one reason that you just have more opportunistic pathogens around. But there are also the risk factors associated with being in a healthcare setting. So think about, you know, elderly patient, uh, certain procedures that are going to be invasive, for example, use of intubations, respirators, etc. And um, something that we have to be aware of is that many people, many patients may have other 
pre-existing lung condition. So they may have asthma, they may have COPD, or some other existing issues that make their lungs more sensitive. So remember, there is not always like one pathology for one patient that may be, um, you know, kind of piling up on the same person depending on pre-existing condition. And a very specific and very nasty case of bacterial pneumonia has to do with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. So Pseudomonas aeruginosa, you may recall, that's a bacterium that has this nice green color in the lab, and it's common in patients who have cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder, and the patient with cystic fibrosis have very thick mucus in their airways that has to be removed quite aggressively on a regular basis because otherwise this thick mucus can be very easily infected with bacteria and Pseudomonas is very hard to treat with antibiotics. Other cases uh, can be patients on ventilators. So I think we have said before that Pseudomonas is a very opportunistic pathogen. Another um, sadly very common and very serious respiratory infection is tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis, one of those acid-fast uh, gram-positive and acid-fast rods, obligate aerobe. Um, I want you to remember how, you know, we talked a lot about the structure of the cell wall, that how the presence of mycolic acid in the cell wall of these bacteria gave it this waxy um, nature. And that's why it was very hard to stain, and that's why you had to use the acid-fast staining, which had acid alcohol as a decolorizer. But the fact that that very um, that the cell wall is so resistant also have other consequences, and one of the consequences is that they can be phagocytosed and they will survive after being phagocytosed. They actually will be very happy inside the phagocytes. So they survive and they can, you know, basically reproduce inside. And um, this group of phagocytic cells, and these cells are very often inside the lungs, will um, form what is called tubercles. And these tubercles, sometimes they basic kind of liquefy and can release bacteria, kind of reactivating the disease. But over time, the tubercles calcify, and then they are called GONES complexes, and GONE is spelled G-H-O-N. <clears throat> so this is like a more solid structure and can be easily seen on an x-ray. But again, the fact that they are kind of confined doesn't mean that they cannot be released. And you may have what's called a secondary tuberculosis, particularly in um, patients who are immune depressed or are vulnerable in other ways, alcoholics and elderly, and again, immune compromised patients. Um, so just to be aware, it's estimated that one third of the world population is 
uh, estimated to be infected. And this is a bacterium. This is an infection that spreads airborne. So it's kind of this uh, perfect storm of biology, you know, the characteristics of this microbe that makes it so resistant and also so easy to spread. And then the social aspects that the people who have the highest risk of getting tuberculosis because of their lifestyle or, you know, poverty, living situations, cramped living, for example, are often the ones who are the hardest to treat. And um, another aspect of this really resistant cell wall and the bacteria being inside other cells also mean that they are very hard to treat. So antibiotics have to penetrate both the uh, phagocyte and then the bacteria itself. So for that reason, treatment of tuberculosis usually is long-term, minimum six months, and of minimum two antibiotics. And very often you have to change them because um, M. tuberculosis is also becomes resistant very easily. Now, how do you um, diagnose TB? The uh, kind of in the the U.S., the most common one is to do the so-called band 2 tuberculin test. That's when you get a little bit of the antigen from the bacteria injected under your skin, and then you look for, you know, a red response, which would indicate that your body has seen the, the bacterium before, although there may be false positive because in some countries there is a vaccination against TB. It's called the BCG vaccine, and then there can be a false positive. So it's usually combined with x-rays. And there are other ways, you know, you can also make cultures of M. tuberculosis. Okay, moving on, we have whooping cough. It's called, it's also called pertussis, and it's caused by Bordetella pertussis. This is a gram-negative cockabacillus with a capsule. And, well, it's whooping cough because it's a very rough cough, and you can, you know, look for it in Google, and it's especially in babies or very young kids, it's, it's very rough to listen to. So the cough is due to um, accumulation of mucus in the lungs and also cytotoxins can damage the ciliated cells in the epithelium. So there is treatment and there is also a vaccine against whooping cough. Then we have a Legionnaire's disease, and Legionnaire's is caused by an aerobic gram-negative bacillus called Legionella pneumophila. And this is a bacterium that spread via aerosols. Now, when we think about aerosols, we often think, you know, sneezing or coughing and so on. But actually, bacteria can be transmitted through aerosols or water, let's say AC or fountains and so on. And this is actually how the, the first outbreak of Legionella happened. It happened in the Legionnaires Convention in the hotel. Everybody in the hotel, because they were breathing the same air, um, got the disease. Um, 
It is a uh, disease that it usually is more dangerous for individuals who are vulnerable, immunocompromised, and so on. And this is another bacterium that is able to grow inside macrophages. Then we have Q fever. Q fever is caused by Coxiella burnetti. And Coxiella is a type of rickettsia. So remember, we're talking about chlamydia being this intracellular bacterium. Rickettsia is the same. And Q fever is zoonotic. It's transmitted from animals such as cattle, goats, etc. So it's very more common among farmers. So let's move on to viral respiratory tract infection, which are very frequent. So they are more frequent in general compared to the uh, bacterial respiratory infections and tend to be milder and self-limiting. So we don't have as many therapies because usually they go away on their own. And I would say the king of all the viral respiratory diseases is the common cold. Common cold is not caused by one virus. There are over 200 viruses that can cause common cold symptoms, and that includes rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, and adenoviruses. And, you know, it's basically inflammation of the nasal mucosa. You have runny nose, sneezing, coughing, sore throat. Usually it doesn't cause high fever. And the only issue with the common cold is that... Um, you know, especially in susceptible older individuals, it may lead to more serious conditions. So there may be an additional infection on top. Now let's talk about influenza. So the influenza virus is one of those viruses that have envelopes. So you may recall that all viruses have a nucleic acid and then a protein capsid, protein kind of coat. And some viruses had, in addition, an envelope outside. And the envelope of the flu virus has a number of spikes, and two of the spikes are enzymes that have to do with the, um, basically with the uh, attachment and invasion of the host cell. And these two enzymes are hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. H and N. So that's where the names of flu strains come, you know, H1N1, H this and that. Another interesting thing about the flu virus is that an RNA virus, but it's not only an RNA virus, but the RNA genome is segmented. What means is that there is a lot of potential for mutation. So that's one of the reasons why the flu vaccine of last year usually doesn't work in the flu virus of this year because there is a very high mutation rate of the flu virus. And, you know, it's a Russian roulette. Basically, we cannot really predict how the different strains are going to, you know, to act on humans. It can be very very mild or can be extremely severe, such as the 1918 H1N1 strain, which caused, caused a pandemic with millions of deaths. So let's move on now to viral pneumonias. And 
Again, there are a number of agents that can cause viral pneumonias, denoviruses, influenza viruses, para-influenza viruses, and one that has kind of come back and it's making the, you know, it has become kind of more known is the RSV, which is respiratory syncytial virus. So in general, these are, they tend to be milder than the bacterial pneumonias, but are also more common in children. And remember that because of the connection between the oropharynx and the, uh, the ear, these infections can go up and uh, cause also otitis. Now we are all aware of coronaviruses because of SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID-19, but there are a number of other previously described coronaviruses such as SARS and MERS and they're both zoonotic infections. SARS is transmitted through bats and civet cats and MERS through camels. Now we talked about measles, rubella, and chickenpox in the skin chapter because they present skin rashes, but they are, um, the portal of entry is respiratory and they actually are classified as systemic diseases. So all three are highly contagious. There are vaccines for all three. Particularly in children, the measles is most dangerous. Chickenpox in children only causes a mild infection. Adults taking chickenpox, is, getting chickenpox is usually more serious. And because the virus stays dormant, the uh, older people may get shingles, which is extremely painful. Um, caused by the same chickenpox virus. And let's move on to fungal respiratory diseases. Kind of the same as we always say that fungal infections are, you know, how should I say that? There, there are a lot of fungal pathogens around and most people have been exposed to um, fungal pathogens, fungal antigens, and healthy individuals usually don't get sick with fungal diseases because the immune system can take care of it. So we most often see these fungal infections in immune-depressed individuals, in uh, elderly individuals, and so on. So first example is histoplasmosis. This is caused by histoplasma capsulatum. And this is a mold that grows in a soil that is rich in bat or bird droppings. And it's very common in the Mississippi Valley. Next one is coccidioidomycosis, which is called by, caused by coccidioides immitis. And this is... Um, endemic to the San Joaquin Valley in California and it's often called the valley fever. And this is one of those cases where the spores, um, you know, can be carried by the wind and, um, you know, inhalation of that spores can cause the infection. Similarly, blastomycosis and mucormycosis, these are, um, also have the soil as a reservoir and the, um, Usually the pulmonary infection are not 
too diff- not too dangerous, but it can be fatal if it becomes systemic. And then we have aspergillosis. So this is caused by the aspergillus mold. We have seen, we have heard about it before. And usually, as typical of fungal infection, it mainly appears in immune-compromised individuals and can present with asthma-like reaction. And we have also pneumocystic pneumonia. This is the one that, you know, when AIDS appeared in the very beginning, it, this pneumonia, which is usually appears in older individuals or immune-compromised individuals, then it was appearing in these much younger patients. And then, of course, then it, people realized that it was because AIDS was causing immune depression. So the agent is called pneumocystis gyrovesi, although you may have heard the name pneumocystis carini before. And last but not least, we have cryptococcosis. So this is an encapsulated yeast, cryptococcus neoformans, which is also present in the soil. And again, immune-compromised patient can inhale the spores and if enters, if it gets to the meninges, it can lead meningitis and it's often fatal if untreated. So this was the end of chapter 22, respiratory system infections. Thank you.